Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And as we continue our journey through Devarim, and this week, Netzavim, it is wonderful to welcome Dr. David Lambert, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, where he teaches Hebrew Bible. He received his PhD, MA, and AB from Harvard University's Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization. He is the author of many articles, and also particularly in, particularly with this week's Parsha in mind, the book How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture. Dr. Lambert, wonderful that you're here with us. A huge welcome. And maybe to begin, how does Deuteronomy 31 to 10 relate really to repentance and the paradigm of redemption? Thank you. First of all, nice to be here. And this is a nice opportunity to revisit some material that I explored in, in that book that you mentioned. So thank you for that. It depends on the time period with which one is asking that question or from which one is asking that question. My contention really is that the concept of repentance as we think about it today, and certainly as the rabbis came to think about it, in this word that in Hebrew, in rabbinic Hebrew, is encapsulated the word tshuva or teshuva, is not really found in the Bible as such. Now, the noun teshuva, which we translate as repentance, and I think that's a pretty good translation, contains within it, in its rabbinic use, a sense of a, an act that an individual carries out, very much something that happens internally to them. And it usually involves a decision not to sin again, and an element of regret as well. And in that respect, I think repentance, if we have to translate it into English, is a pretty good translation. The rabbis chose this term tshuva because it has in it the root shuv, which is also found in the Bible. And it's found in our passage as well in this uh, week's parasha, in the Tzavim, uh, when it is said that the people will shuv to their God. Uh, and Heed his voice. And the question really is, is this the same thing as the rabbinic concept of tshuva? The rabbis, certainly by using that root, are suggesting that it is. But my suggestion is that when we look at it in terms of its full range of uses in the Bible, that what tshuv describes is not so much an act, not so much something that's internal, 
in this case, in this passage, not something that's individual either. This is national. This is something that's occurring throughout the nation, not as many individual feeling some kind of mental regret, but rather as a fundamental change in behavior across the nation. So it has an element more of societal justice, the societal performance of God's will across society, rather than internally a decision or a feeling of regret that I may or may not have had. And so the implications are more communal. The implications are also more physical in the sense that if you repent, perhaps you sin again. Okay, you repent again. But this has something else in mind. This has really in mind a kind of societal transformation. There are other elements to ask about redemption. This is also a redemptive vision that this societal transformation will come at some point in Israel's future after they've been in exile, that from that position, they will be eventually forced now to turn back to their God. And the society will, from that moment, change, but that he's also going to have a role. There's another image here that, in fact, part of this transformation is going to be caused by God himself, as it were, that he's going to circumcise their hearts so that they can't do anything but now adhere to his will. And I would call that something other than repentance. I would call that something like a divine recreation of Israel. Wonderful. Thank thank you for setting that out um, so clearly. And maybe now could you um, expand upon the parallels and maybe differences too between the rabbinic understanding of Teshuvah versus the biblical understanding of that phrase, return to the Lord. Sure. Yeah. So I I guess I started to do that a little bit. But to take an example, on Yom Kippur, there is a mitzvah, a commandment to do teshuvah. It's something that one can perform in a discreet sort of a way. One can even do it in a moment. You can say, I did something wrong. I feel really sorry for it and I repent. In the case of the Bible, this idea of shuvin or turning to God is much more a statement about what is one's overall relational state vis-a-vis God. Is one heeding him? Is one not? And in fact, in later forms of biblical Hebrew, The phrase shuv is often used in a phrase, instead of the positive phrase to turn to God, it's used more with a negative formulation, to turn away from sin. And I think that's a very telling formulation. It's close to the rabbinic concept, but there are important divergences. So what that really means to turn away from sin is to state that effectively, and it's usually a communal operation, This community has now removed sin from its midst. You can think of it as a form of purification of sorts. Whereas really on Yom Kippur, when one thinks about the mitzvah, the commandment to repent, 
It really is much more about an internal decision that one arrives at in a particular given moment. And that's why the rabbis can also use this interesting phrase, to do repentance, la'asot teshuvah, to do repentance, which is not found in the biblical material. Because it is a kind of act that has a beginning, it has an end, it's something one can accomplish. Whereas in the Bible, it's much more of an overall statement about the state of society. And so on Yom Kippur, for instance, it's something that one expects individual congregants to do. Whereas in the biblical context, it's more what one expects the society or, for instance, the story of Jonah. It's the city as a whole, Nineveh as a whole, turns away from its sin, which is to say it stops arming the poor. It stops, makes sure that there's no sorts of wrongdoing in the midst of the city. It makes sure that justice is being pursued in the city. There's no form of oppression. That would be the kind way in which the biblical concept moves beyond the boundaries of the individual to really be a statement about the, the state of society as a whole. Thank you. And maybe just to unpack a little further that phrase, return to the Lord, how really did the phrase develop? And maybe where does the phrase in Deuteronomy sit within the development? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a complex one, because you know, as we know, the Bible wasn't written down all at one time. And it has its own history to it, texts written at different time periods. And so it is very much important to be aware of changes within the, the context of biblical literature itself. So I think that this phrase, which became so important and which the rabbis picked up, is has three different stages within the Bible itself. The first phrase, the first stage rather, which is often found in early prophetic literature is oftentimes more closely connected to turning to God for help. So the phrase shuv, which we generally translate as return, actually means something more like to turn back. That is to say, when we say return in English, we're speaking from the perspective of the place. A person has gone away, and they have now returned to that place. It's not the case in Biblical Hebrew. In Biblical Hebrew, it describes what the subject of the verb they themselves are doing. So if one shoves, that simply means that one has turned back around. It's a change of direction. It doesn't necessarily mean that you returned to a prior place, although it can. In this case, the language of turning that shuv seems to imply, often appears with other verbs, like seeking out God or begging. So a good example here of this is in Hosea, 
the people are said to, in their distress, to seek out God's face and to seek his favor and then also to turn to him. And I think rather than meaning something separate like repentance, here this turning to God in these earliest stages is actually a form of appeal. It's a form of prayer. There's another verse in Isaiah that describes how Israel has to turn back to the one who is beating it. That's a very remarkable phrase. An image of somebody beating another person, and then that person, if that person wants to wants relief, what do they do? They need to turn back to ask for help. In this case, that, that phrase is applied to the relationship between God and Israel, that God is punishing Israel for its sins. He's the one beating them. So who does Israel need to turn to if they want relief? They need to turn back to God. So I think early on, Shuv has to do more with appeal, seeking out God by way of getting help from a situation that perhaps he has put them in. The second stage is found in the book of Jeremiah. He starts to explore this phrase in new ways, not as an act of appeal, but as a covenantal return that Israel ought to return to God just as a wayward son who has left his parents, perhaps been disobedient in some fashion or another, but can return to his home. Because, of course, he's going to be welcomed back, and so the possibility of return is open. In this case, it's not so much about appeal, because the idea of a wayward son returning home is not so much that necessarily is appealing to the parents, and it's not used in the vicinity of that language. Rather, it's about a return to the covenant, a return to the relationship. You're going back to that relationship, which kind of fits into the appeal notion, but it moves it in a new direction that focuses a bit more on behavioral norms. If you're in a covenant, you have to follow the norms. If you go back home, you need to follow the norms of your home, of your parents to whom you're returning. Then there's a third layer, and this is chronological. The earlier prophets use the appeal idea. Jeremiah, who's later, sixth century, is going to be using the covenantal idea. And the third layer is to make it just about behavioral norms. And that's when we start to see the negative phrase that I mentioned earlier used. Now we no longer find the phrase to turn to God, and instead it's become turning away from sin. It's become simply a way of talking about proper societal, the, the adherence to proper societal norms. And now, once we get to this third stage, we're much, much closer to the rabbinic concept of la'asot teshuvah as well, where la'asot teshuvah is first and foremost a repudiation of something wrong that one has done. It's not a return to God. One could imagine that it involves that. But first and foremost, it's what we call repentance. You've done something wrong and you repent of it. And so you can see a kind of natural development moving from the idea of appeal, moving to the idea of a return to a covenantal relationship, which includes behavioral norms, moving to the idea that now it's just about rejecting and removing oneself from, on a societal level, from improper behavior, to the rabbinic idea that it's something that happens inside a kind of internal repudiation or rejection of a specific thing that one has done wrong. Such a wonderful and complex tapestry that we're going through. Maybe just to pick up on 
one of the elements and to understand how you see the difference between that notion of the cessation of sin and then versus an act of teshuvah. Mm-hmm. What, what's the difference between those two? I guess I've been speaking to that somewhat already a bit. But another thing that I might mention that's also quite interesting in this regard, if one compares Deuteronomy 30, the first 10 verses or so, which is very similar as well to Deuteronomy 4, what you discover is that many of the translations play a little bit fast and loose with the Hebrew. And I have here in front of me the new, what's called the new uh, Jewish Publication Society, the NJPS translation. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 30, it translates it as follows. It says, when all, when all of these things befall you, the blessing and the curse that I've set before you, and you take them to heart amidst the various nations to which the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, it then says in verse 6, then the Lord your God will open up your heart. As if you do these things, or once you do these things, then God will do these other things. And so that makes the first verses seem like a call for a certain kind of behavior. In fact, when you look at the Hebrew, there's no distinction between any of the verses. It simply gives a list of all of the things that are going to happen in the future. It doesn't say if, then, or when, then. It simply says, these things are going to happen to you. You're going to take them to heart. You're going to turn to the Lord. And then skipping to verse six, he's going to circumcise your hearts. So it talks about what is going to happen. It's a difference between prediction or prophecy, which is how I'm understanding the passage, and a call to repent, a call upon us as something that's incumbent upon us. And that's another one of the major differences that in the biblical material, it's never the case really that, or very rarely, there, there are some there, there are some exceptions in the later forms, but in this passage in Deuteronomy, it's much more something that is simply going to ensue. It's something that's going to happen naturally. It's not something that's in a sense incumbent upon us as individuals. Whereas in the rabbinic concept, it's very much something that is about a choice that we all need to make. You do have some calls to turn around, to turn to God in some other materials in the Bible, not in the Deuteronomy passage. It's not active in that way. It's not a command, an active command in that way. But again, I think it's really referring to something that's much more societal than individual, that's much more behavioral than internal. And and I think that is really quite significant also for our thinking about the, the purpose of the holidays as well. great that you touched on the upcoming important auspicious time and how appropriate that we are talking about teshuva in that case i wonder perhaps this is a more personal question but how you see 
the understanding of the historical evolution of some of these important concepts that we've been talking about and how that really helps shape our approach to New Year and, of course, the concept of Teshuvah in relation to the high holidays that are upcoming. That's, that is something that I've thought about in past years, certainly. And I would say that, first of all, I think that the way we think about Judaism today is very much defined by the rabbis. So on a basic level, I would say the celebration of Yom Kippur today is defined by the rabbinic understanding that we do have to engage in this introspection, that we do have to think about things that we may have done wrong over the course of the year, right? That is very much the traditional Jewish concept. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't argue otherwise. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the sort of, I think, inquiry that is at the heart of the podcast that you've put together here between the lines, and certainly that's at the heart of my work as well, is a kind of inquiry that's interested in pushing beyond maybe simply the the norms, the traditions, what we've always been taught and assumed to look at new possibilities, new ways of understanding. And from that perspective, I think that the biblical material does open up new possibilities for understanding. I don't see them as replacements or as the more correct version. I see them as alternatives that can challenge us to think in new ways and it help us to engage in a productive dialogue between our traditional forms of understanding and those forms of understanding that are enabled by the kinds of historical inquiries that scholars such as myself do. In this case, I think what this study that I embarked on into the meaning of shuv, among other things, in the Hebrew Bible points to is a way of looking at the state of the world rather than the state of our individual souls. Do we go into Yom Kippur save, trying to save ourselves as individuals with a focus on what is going on in our own mind, what is going on perhaps in our own family dynamics with our friends? Have we done something wrong to another? These are all, of course, important, and I wouldn't suggest undoing them. On the other hand, they can obscure the bigger picture. They can obscure the more system-wide problems in which we're enmeshed that may be beyond our individual control, but nevertheless very much define who we are and our place in the world. And so what I would suggest is that the biblical notions of communities as a whole, not so much as repenting, but more turning away from iniquity, turning away from problems that are in their midst, suggest a much broader societal view of what our task ultimately is. Not, it's not enough for us as individuals to give our tzedakah, our charity, to do our tefillah, our prayer, to do our tshuva, our repentance, as the, the famous threefold call requires of us. Those are surely important. But it's also important, I would suggest, if we're going to introduce the more biblical perspective here, to think broadly about 
the state of society, to think broadly about injustice, forms of oppression that are that surround us. And in this respect, it's very important to remember that the biblical perspective is always about the land. The state of the land, in this case, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, is always in view. Is justice being preserved in the land? It doesn't matter so much whether you or I, maybe I did something wrong, maybe you did something. What matters is what is the state of the society as a whole? What is the state of this land? Is this a land where the poor are taken care of, where they have food to eat? For instance, there's a law, right, back in Leviticus and elsewhere about leaving the corners of one's field available to the poor, in which case one can say that this is a land in which the poor have food or at least access to some food that they can pick. Or is this a place where, in fact, the land itself isn't being maintained properly? There's injustice in the land. There's robbery. There's oppression. I think that it's a time in which we might want to also think about those broader questions. And I think that the biblical concept of Shuv invites us to do that. Fascinating that the rabbis, you say, really focused much more on the individual, but the biblical notion was more society and how important they both are, of course, but certainly not to forget the biblical today. And of course, referencing the land, how important to to bring that up today with what's happening um, in Israel too. Mm-hmm. That's right. Dr. Lambert, thank you so much for joining us today and exploring with us and introducing such important themes, of course, for this time of year too. Thank you, Simon. It was really a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out more about our exciting content we have for you at our mothership, jewishquest.org. We do look forward to meeting again next week. Mm -hmm.